Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 101. I'm Steve Kwan. And I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. And today, we have a friend of the podcast returning again for round two. All the way from the Isle of Vancouver, Mr. Rory Van Vliet of BJJ Concepts and of RVV BJJ. Rory, how are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me out again. So I have wanted to have you on the podcast back again for a long time. The previous episode we did on online education, people really enjoyed, and I really enjoyed it because actually it was really easy to edit, <laughs> which for me is like the gold standard, especially after having so many guests recently that don't have podcasting experience. Having someone on the other end of the phone here who actually knows how to like speak for recorded audio is fantastic. So I am looking forward to editing this one. I'm sure it will be quite easy. Well, I'm glad that I was able to make your job easier for you. It's unfortunate that we have Matt Kwan here. So, I mean, that's going to make it a little more difficult. The metric of you enjoying the episode is based upon how easy your life is made by the guest. Basically. (laughs) (laughs) It's honest. It it is funny, Rory. I mean, I, I know that you also do a lot of like YouTube and audio stuff too. And I'm wondering if you encounter this because we get these guests on and sometimes like they are non-technical to a level I didn't even know was possible. Like they'll say things like, I, you know, I don't even have a computer. It's like, who doesn't have a computer? I didn't know that was a thing. But, you know, some people, they, they won't have computers or they will insist on using like a certain recording tool that they're comfortable with, like Zoom, even given the limitations of that. It's quite exasperating sometimes. Dude, I work with Rob Bernacki, so I, I've constantly been trying to uh, kind of help him along and uh, tell him what microphone he needs to get. And then he's working with some laptop that he's had for 12 years, and we're trying to work with that, find a way to work with older equipment with my pretty top-end equipment. Uh, yeah, it's like trying to help my dad navigate Facebook. <laughs> well, Matt can speak to this too. Like, our parents, for a long time, they really weren't technical. Like my mom was using DOS until like the year 2010. (laughs) But, But at some point they started kind of like getting into Apple stuff. And you know what a rabbit hole that is. Now they've got like 12 Apple devices. And I'm telling you, I think my dad spends more time like talking to Apple support than he does talking to his family. Because every time like I get on the phone with my mom, he's in the background yelling at Apple support over something because like he can't figure out how to sync his photos. And (laughs) it's like, I actually kind of feel bad for Apple because given how expensive their products are, I'm sure they are still losing money on my father just due to the amount of time he wastes there. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, let's talk about something meaningful, not our father's uh, 
quarrels with Apple. (laughs) So actually, Rory, there's a topic that we wanted to get into for a while, and it's just been a matter of finding a person with the right expertise. And so you're here, so you're it. And I'm looking forward to having this conversation. This is the topic of jujitsu for healthcare. Uh, and I think that this goes beyond just how jujitsu can benefit healthcare professionals. I think also there is a degree of the mindset that a caregiver needs to have in everyday life. I mean, when we train jujitsu, we've got this hilarious fantasy that one day, you know, we're going to get attacked on the street and we're going to use our jujitsu to defeat the attacker and we're going to, you know, be a total hero. In reality, if you have to use jujitsu, it's probably going to wind up being a lot less glamorous than that. I used to train with this black belt who called it the drunk uncle scenario, where like, you know, where you're probably actually going to need jujitsu is you're like at a family gathering and your drunk uncle wants to see if jujitsu really works. So he just attacks you. And, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to sort of gari him onto the floor and give him a concussion? Probably not. So the question then becomes, how do you use jujitsu with the alleged original intent of doing it safely and with control. And that's something that, of course, as a caregiver is top of mind, because when you use jujitsu in a healthcare environment, it's not to win medals, right? It's to ensure the safety of a person who may have lost their self-control. 100%. If there was one thing to start talking about is just the level of violence in healthcare, because I think that's something that outsiders are just quite ignorant to, as I was ignorant to. So I worked protection services at a hospital for about three years. That's just a fancy word for security. And I was blown away at how violent that workplace was. Every day we were having aggressive patients, so code whites, where we have to sprint to areas in the hospital to help staff with just these dire situations. And At the same time, we also just had a regular routine of patients that we were working with suffering with forms of dementia or mental health issues in the psychiatric units. And the unpredictability of what we deal with in the emergency department, I was getting into physical altercations every day, ranging from actual takedowns to have to control somebody that comes in delirious or on drugs being brought in by paramedics and they start breaking out of the control on the stretcher and they start running down the hall that kind of, or someone being able to actually get a weapon, whether it's a tool laying around in the hospital or being able to take off like the IV bag rod and hook off of a stretcher and start swinging around, breaking equipment versus the much smaller day-to-day stuff, which was still very regular and violent, which was working with elderly patients with dementia who are confined to their bed And it's just routine cleaning, changing of diapers, changing bedding, trying to uh, administer medication, whatever the healthcare duties are. And these people, unfortunately, are unaware of where they are a lot of the time, unaware of the people that are trying to put their hands on them and what they're trying to accomplish. And so they are fearful for their life. They think that people are trying to hurt them. And they're trying to constantly bite and scratch and hit and kick. And while some of them might not be able to generate very much force to be able to knock somebody out, they can still absolutely cause damage through scratching or especially through biting. And then depending on who's working with them, the interesting thing in healthcare is this is a female dominated workforce. So you can have a 
120 pound woman having to work with a elderly male patient and that's the this there isn't much of a size or strength advantage or they're actually at the disadvantage even against an elderly patient who is very motivated to fight for their life and i was amazed at how violent it was and how little training anybody was offered in healthcare in preparation for that violence I do train with some police officers, some border guards. I know it's not the same job, but the border guards said that they, for hand-to-hand grappling training, the amount they get is one week every three years, which is just, it's just no, nowhere near the amount of, of training where you can actually ingrain the movements and the ideas into like a second nature situation. You know, we know this from doing years and years of jujitsu, how long it actually takes to understand and sort of grow your game and be able to utilize it in a stressful situation. So I can totally see how these healthcare workers, you say that, you know, mostly, mostly a woman dominated industry, you know, they, they, if they don't have the training that they need against these people who are, like you said, confused, don't know where they are. They think someone's trying to hurt them or they're under the influence or whatever of drugs, you know, Imagine when you roll with a white belt for the first their first class and how spazzy they are. Now imagine that white belt is, you know, intoxicated or mentally ill or, um, you know, thinking someone is actually trying to hurt them and they have the ability to bite, scratch. At this point, it's like I think it's a really good thing what you're doing, Rory, and bringing awareness to the fact that these these healthcare workers do need this training amongst other like, uh, I mean, law enforcement. It's another it's another discussion, but. Basically, the world needs more jujitsu, in my opinion, and especially these roles where we're trying to control people in a ma- in an effective manner without causing them damage, and certainly sparing the uh, the workers who are trying to control them the uh, possible damage. Absolutely, there's, and even speaking about law enforcement, like you did, and I absolutely agree. For me, in corrections, I only get one day of training of a refresher every two years, I think it is, or maybe every three years. I can't quite wow. remember. It's not a, it's not <laughs> Good enough. Good thing you're a black belt. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Right. And, but at least when someone is getting into law enforcement or anything to do around law enforcement, there is usually a understanding that there is going to be a violent part of the job and that you have to be able to subdue suspects and have to go through uncooperative handcuffing procedures. So, and that's not to say that people are trained properly at all. They're still not proper. There's no proper training really given to them and it's not done enough. But especially when we're looking at healthcare, we have, whether we want to break it down, like as it's a female dominated workforce again, but everybody that gets into healthcare to work there, female or male is getting into the job to care for people, to look after people, to help them get better. And so I've I've come across a lot of nurses as students that they take the courses uh, at university, they learn how to help people get better. And there's, once again, very little actual talk about the violence that they're going to face. And they're almost just thrown to the wolves, put into the situation. And they're, they never thought about training martial arts. They never had the interest of getting into uh, sparring and doing like that stuff where uh, same with law enforcement, it is a male dominated workforce and men are a little more primitive in the idea that we tend to like to fight each other. You, you talk to young men who hasn't grappled 
their buddies in like at their uh, friend's house and just trying to kill each other for fun. Mm-hmm. When you look at the games that we play as men, we're always turning things, anything into weapons and we're wanting to play. So or dicks <laughs> or that. <laughs> and so when it comes to uh, trying to get men more involved with martial arts and thinking about the self-defense stuff, they're much more likely to, I, I find, to get into that stuff and be willing to start training it at first because they just like the that athletic competitive nature of it. And so when I'm trying to talk to uh, a woman about the idea of self-defense, obviously that's something that's very important. And we are seeing more and more women being empowered by this stuff and being able to defend themselves in situations, which is fantastic. But it's very difficult to find that female nurses say, if I'm going to just pick out that group, that they haven't thought about training this stuff or they're not looking to on their days off, go to a jujitsu class as often and spar with other females or men to learn these skills. And so this is where I've created an online course, healthcare control strategies and self-defense to try and take my experience as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, as well as my experience in the hospital setting and be able to teach a fundamental approach to to look at alignment and proper body positioning relative to your patient, ways that you can compromise your patient's alignment without actually doing it in the grappling sense of like grabbing their head and breaking posture or taking them down onto their back, but just even looking at how putting them in different positions of disadvantage, like the difference of someone standing versus seated versus laying on their back in a supine position versus laying on their stomach in a prone position and how that affects alignment and their abilities to generate force to cause harm towards you. And then looking at frames and levers to gain mechanical advantages while you're doing just your routine day-to-day duties so that they're able to position themselves to preemptively protect themselves rather than having to think about reacting because the reacting part is the most difficult. And I have material on that in the course as well. But the biggest thing that I saw for nurses getting hurt at work was usually a complete lack of understanding of the threat, whether it's just assessing the actual totality of the situation, the environment, the patient's environmental factors that might also be agitating a patient and not having awareness of how to stand in proper alignment or how to position themselves. And so they just end up leaning over a patient in an awkward way, breaking their alignment, breaking their posture, making themselves weak, given the patient too much accessibility to be able to hit them with all their different weapons. So all four limbs as well as head butts and bites. And I found that usually came down to that lack of awareness, the lack of training. Sometimes it can also just be complacency because I'm guilty of this as well. When you're working a 12 hour shift by the end of that day, sometimes you're not thinking as clearly or you're not taking as much time to think appropriately about a situation. And I think a lot of the injuries that I saw could have been prevented at a much earlier stage, just with the proper training and awareness, let alone getting into the actual self-defense part of jujitsu. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get it. And I, like you said, and in the context of law enforcement, I mean, I think that there is a natural logic to why police should train jujitsu, but at least there's some awareness of that. You know, there is a big push to get more cops training jujitsu. And there is an expectation that if you get into law enforcement, there is the possibility of a violent encounter where you may have to protect yourself. But like you said, you know, I'm not sure if people getting 
into healthcare expect this to be a daily concern for themselves. I'm not sure if they realize that this is something that could happen. It certainly isn't part of the way that that type of job is advertised that, you know, you might have to subdue and restrain people with uh, mental disorders or people in extreme states of distress. That kind of thing is not part of the advertising brochure that they give you at the job fair when you go to become a nurse, right? Like that's not the kind of thing that you would expect to to have to take into account. No, it's not. Moreover, you know, I think that when people think about jujitsu, they're often thinking about self-defense, but In this case, there's actually that extra layer of it's not just about protecting yourself, it's about protecting your assailant. And that is maybe uh, a pivot in the messaging that we need to think about where people need to understand, no, this is not just about you learning how to defend yourself. It is actually a job-related skill to make you more effective in providing care to the patient and ensuring their safety and their health as well. 100%. Self-defense, that term gets a really bad rep and it might be something that from a marketing perspective, I find later I'm going to have to change the name of the course. But my goal is to try and change that dynamic because like you said, Steve, it's we have to protect the patient. Somebody is in the hospital or at the care home, whatever setting we're looking at, your job is to help them. And when patients are getting hurt, it's really scrutinized heavily. And so self the, the idea of self-defense that was is usually places that it's you or them kind of mindset to it, where you kind of just strike to the eyes, you're going to stomp the groin and restomp the groin afterwards. <laughs> that stuff doesn't, that's not how this is supposed to be done. Hey, it works, man. Use what works. It absolutely works in the sense that, yeah, if you have to use proper, like actual self-defense in your life is threatened, you have to do what you got to do to protect yourself. Most of the time in healthcare, it's not to that extent. And so that's what's great about jujitsu is that we have that ability to use a grappling approach, even though I'm not really teaching grappling techniques in this online course, but we have the ability to use levers to be able to hand fight and control the arms effectively so that we're able to gain that mechanical advantage and control somebody efficiently for a longer period of time while doing it in a way that's very gentle. And so that's another thing is that when we start looking at the different patients that we work with, especially elderly patients, we now have to start factoring things that we don't in jujitsu, which is we're looking at how delicate an elderly person's skin is. And I have seen, unfortunately, protection services officers, as well as uh, other healthcare workers, when an elderly patient is freaking out and they're jumping in trying to control because they don't know how to even, they don't have a plan on how to approach that patient and how to actually try and get control of their arm or their leg in a safe manner, they end up grabbing midway on the forearm. So we're not going to the end of the lever at the elbow or the wrist, not getting proper two-on-one control. And they end up just grabbing the mid forearm and then all the skin slides and tears off as they slide down to the wrist. Jesus. And I, I saw that several times where they're trying to do their job the best that they know how, but unfortunately they weren't trained to do so. And so then they feel like garbage because they're trying to go in there and help this patient and they end up actually causing more harm. So my goal is to teach very fundamental stuff, not going into takedowns or anything like that uh, to this extent within this instructional, but just even if you're working with somebody while they're in a seated position or if they're laying down in a bed, how do we control the arms effectively and the various ways we can do that? How do we control the legs effectively so that we're avoiding getting kicked? How do we prevent bites? How do we deal with someone when they do grab us, grabbing our wrist, 
grabbing our shirt, grabbing our hair, if they try and bite us or if they do bite us. And then a bit of basic self-defense stuff on how to disengage from a situation if a patient is trying to get up and actually start running towards you, that you're able to keep that distance without just resorting to, say, a palm strike and breaking their nose. Because we want to try and avoid doing that stuff. Now, if you are, if your life is threatened, then you absolutely have to defend yourself. And I have seen instances where security or healthcare workers have had to hit patients before, and they were protected legally to do so, but it's still heavily scrutinized. There's an investigation. Uh, one of my friends was even uh, charged with excessive force for hitting a patient, but he was acquitted of that, but it's still the stress of that. And so there'd be times where doing my job that I never got hit any anything uh, with a significant uh, damage. But if I got slapped by old 98-year-old Ina and, or I got scratched slightly, I just, I had to work around that and just try to learn from that and see what I could do better to prevent that in the future. Or I accept it and just as a six foot five. 21-year-old male at the time that was quite athletic, if I get kicked by an old person, it was a minor inconvenience most of the time, and I was willing to accept that little bit of damage coming towards me to be able to do my job to protect them. And I'm not recommending that that's something that anyone does because we always want to come back. Uh, we want to leave work in the same shape that we went in at the start of the day. But these are the difficult challenges that healthcare workers have to face. And that was the goal of having this talk with you guys is to shed some more light on that for the outsiders that aren't in there to understand what their significant others or their friends might be going through. But then also to try and reach out and spread awareness of obviously plugging my own product like a douchebag, but trying to give uh, some more information that I think could be extremely beneficial to anybody that's working in healthcare. And so far, the uh, reception that I've been getting from people has been very positive reviews. Nice. I have to plead ignorance. I, you know, I watch your YouTube channels, tons of awesome content for jujitsu. A lot of, you know, under Rob Bernacki, obviously the conceptual approach, the alignment stuff. I haven't actually seen any of your material on uh, this topic, but I imagine the way you sort of build it is it starts the same way the the talking about correct body positioning for maximal effect, you know, how to control levers, what a lever is, how to break alignment while you maintain your alignment. I imagine this is sort of where the curriculum begins as opposed to learning like, you know, obviously certain scenarios you know, how often are you going to end up on your back? It can happen. But how often are you going to do that? Uh, how often are you going to teach blast doubles on, you know, this could be on an old person who has no idea how to fall. Uh, so again, building the curriculum on more so control as opposed to like dynamic impact and, and effect against a trained opponent. That's a challenge for you, um, I'm sure. Where do you sort of start with with this instruction? Like what, what, what techniques are valid techniques sort of, sort of give us just a brief introduction on, on, uh, where you go with this. Absolutely. So like you were saying, Matt, this, uh, it's a very different instructional. And like I have referenced earlier, the demographic, the people that I'm trying to reach as customers is quite different. So I can't, I, I'm going to approach it in a very similar way, like you're saying, talking about alignment, but I also have to make sure that I'm presenting this stuff in a way that is going to 
work for somebody with no martial arts experience. So if you've never thought about martial arts, you've never had any interest in martial arts or self-defense, which wasn't uncommon for some of the nurses that I've worked with, are they able to get something from this? And then also making sure that I'm getting to points a bit quicker. I use graphics and animations to be able to break stuff down, uh, which is something that I don't ever see in regular jujitsu instructionals because when it comes to just regular jiu-jitsu instructionals, we know what we want. We're already fans of the people that we're purchasing from. And so I have to try and present this stuff a bit differently. The main way that I break down the instructional is looking at the different levels of force in healthcare as I've kind of assigned it over time. And it's very similar to a use of force continuum model from law enforcement perspective. Level one is presence. And so we talk about just the idea of proper alignment and going over that concept and how to be in proper positioning and a stance and a more assertive stance where we're keeping our hands up in a non-threatening manner so that we're able to interact with a patient and be able to assess the environment, the patient and the environment, while being able to quickly react because we're already in good positioning. Then we look at level two, which is communication. So this is once communication has been established with the patient, that's going to be through body language and obviously verbal. My goal of the instructional was not to go crazy into any kind of verbal strategies or anything like that. But we cover just a bit on basic body language. The main focuses of the healthcare instructional was going into level three, which is passive resistance, where a patient is not actively fighting against you. They're not trying to assault you, but they're not doing anything to help you. Then we have level four, which is active resistance, where the patient is not trying to hit you, but they're actively resisting. So they're refusing to take medication as you're trying to hold their arm to take a blood sample. They're ripping their arm away, etc., and then level five, where we're actually dealing with assault of patients that are trying to kick, bite, scratch, get up and run at you. And so it's a very slow introduction to the different concepts of alignment and how to keep yourself in proper alignment, how to take your patient out of maximal alignment so that you're able to gain that advantage uh, or at least narrow down uh, the difference of the size and strength that you might be going up against. And using leverage and using frames and your body weight. And it's all kind of around the idea of aggregate of marginal gains in which you are, if I'm looking at a 120 pound female nurse working with a 200 pound male, what are the different ways that she can position herself relative to her patient, use levers while controlling the patient's arm, have them already established in a position of disadvantage, being able to use her body weight and mechanical advantage, just always try and close that gap to make it an even playing field as much as possible, or even stack the cards in her favor so that she can either be able to overpower a patient and control them effectively if she needed to, or most importantly, if there wasn't backup or there isn't enough backup or you still just feel unsafe, get them out of that situation. So that if it, even if it's just them being able to get out of that room or out of that, the gripping reach of a patient, that they're able to get more support in there to wait for security or even in the most extreme circumstances, get law enforcement where you actually have to call the police officers to help security at the hospital, that they're able to do that. And so I'm not dealing with, like when we're talking about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and a grappling-based approach, I'm not showing grappling in the sense of, like you were saying, like what to do when they're on their back, although that's an important self-defense situation. You really screwed up a long time ago if you're on your back on the floor at the hospital and so my goal is the first, it's an introduction to that stuff. So I'm not going to be showing guard work or takedowns or anything like that. Or guard passing. Guard <laughs> passing, because that's 
way too advanced. And this is supposed to be something that if, say, I imagine, like, I was trying to think of my mom, and now she's not in healthcare, but it's like just those those 40 to 50-year-old women that are amazing nurses that are in the healthcare field and doing that work every day. How can I make it interesting to them and have them be able to learn stuff from that? That, I mean, some of the concepts, like I've had some nurses already giving me feedback, which has been amazing, that just the ideas of alignment, the ideas of body positioning and uh, making sure you always have an exit plan and stuff to be assessing at all times. They're able to just watch that video or those videos and be able to go to work the next day and start mentally thinking about it. And that's already making them feel more safe because some of these people are too busy or aren't quite as motivated yet to have a training partner to arrange training time outside of work. And so I wanted to be able to like, if you just even watch the first 10 videos, I think you could get a ton of information out that you don't even have to actually drill. It's stuff that you're going to be drilling in a sense and practicing at actual at the job and able to do so in a way that's not like you're not practicing takedowns at work or something. You're just changing the way that you're gripping with your hands when you're controlling a patient, how you escort a patient, how you position yourself next to a patient, etc. I do love the idea of hitting an inside trip on grandma and then doing a Toriando pass and you know, <laughs> making sure that you hold the position for points. You'd probably still get triangled. <laughs> yeah. um, but one thing that I love about what you're describing here is you're demonstrating that jujitsu is just one piece of the puzzle. It's not the entire solution. And this is where I think we often lose the plot when we try to pitch jujitsu to the general public. We kind of like to argue that jujitsu is everything. It's like it's this magic solution and it's all you need. And I think it comes from the fact that a lot of the people who really advocate for, for jujitsu, they're people, you know, who have made jujitsu their entire life, like the Gracies, for example. And I think that one of the things you're bringing to light here, which is important, is that jujitsu in this context, it's just one piece of the puzzle. Like the preferable solution is to de-escalate and avoid that conflict in the first place. And even if it does come to an actual conflict, it, you need to consider things like an exit plan, situational awareness. That kind of stuff, I think, is missing from a lot of jujitsu-only frameworks. And I think that's probably part of the reason why the jujitsu sales pitch often doesn't resonate with a lot of professionals. I think if we positioned it more as this is a complete framework for managing encounters in your career, I think that might be a lot more attractive to people working in healthcare than just saying, you know, like, look, this is pajama wrestling, right? I, I can understand how a layperson could see what we do and to not immediately get how that becomes relevant to their particular job. Yeah. And as we were talking about jujitsu, it usually the stuff that we're practicing when we're doing our pajama wrestling is at an extreme that we don't see that often. And so that's much more uh, common in law enforcement. We see cops being thrown on their asses and half and two trying to fend and get back up from there. And that definitely still happens in healthcare, but it's a lot more rare. And so when we're over, when we're looking at risk assessments, if somebody hasn't been thrown on their ass before, or they haven't seen another coworker be in a similar situation, or even if they have, they've only seen it once in their career you're just naturally going to be less inclined to want to practice this thing. If you see Rory's teaching a healthcare instructional and you're seeing me do a bunch of advanced work off of my back, that's just not realistic where the stuff that we are seeing in healthcare is going to be working next to a patient at this very intimate range, which is why healthcare is also 
much more dangerous than a lot of other workforces is that you work on this intimate hands-on work range where you have to be able to touch your patient, whether it's for cleaning or dressing wounds to be able to take blood, whatever the, the duties are that you're talking about, you sit so close to them or you stand so close to them, which then also means that you have a shorter window of reaction time if they choose to become violent and they're able to quickly get their hands on you in that circumstance. Well, that's another thing, too, is that the wind conditions here for being a caregiver are quite different from other contexts, right? In a self-defense situation, you know, basically you want to control and you want to stay safe. And police, of course, have their own objectives in terms of enforcing the law. But if you are a caregiver, then your obligations go beyond that. Like, like you said, what if you need this person to take their medicine, right? Like that is a completely different challenge that doesn't just fall into traditional jujitsu control. And those layers are something that I think is missing. And yeah, like you said, there's going to be a lot of the stuff that we do on the mats that might not necessarily make sense in the context of like, look, buddy, I need to get you to change your underwear, <laughs> you know, that yeah. kind of thing, like problems that could come up in a realistic healthcare situation that we just don't really think about. And so there, there's kind of like a different set of objectives if you're going to be a healthcare provider. And I think it's good that you're actually calling some of those out. Yeah, I, I hope that uh, more people, I've only just launched it, but I hope that this is able to start to spread around and people uh, like the information that they're getting. I was be, kind of beta testing it for the last few weeks giving it out to nurses that I know anyone uh, in any kind of uh, emergency medical services and just making sure that I'm presenting this information in a way that is resonating with them. Cause like I said, as for all of us, the audiences that we're used to teaching to, I am pretty damn good at being able to teach this knowing uh, when I'm directing this information to primarily male athletes that are already super into jujitsu and are looking to try and find the best ways of pursuing black belt and becoming a good instructor and being able to kill people in competition. But how do I have to change this approach and be able to teach this in a way that shows the compassionate side of jujitsu that they're able to protect themselves with also trying to protect their patient as much as possible and to be able to do that to complete those healthcare duties, because I'm going to be addressing uh, so many different things, and reaching out to an audience that I am not used to trying to reach out before. And hopefully that they watch this and they get a lot out of it, which I think they will. And then the further addition to that would be hopefully then that's what motivates them. That changes their uh, the thought that they had about self-defense and the crappy self-defense things out there and encourages them to take Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes or anything else. And I think that something that is worth pointing out is, you know, you talked about how so many people who do jujitsu, we're generally talking about a particular demographic, right? And, and realistically speaking, we're generally talking about people who are healthy and probably relatively young, because I mean, if you want to do jujitsu for a long time, and especially if you want to compete, it's very likely you fall into that category. And I think a, a hole in the education that we provide when we talk about jujitsu is we often don't provide the context that like the kind of things that you can do 
safely against a young, healthy athlete, it's very, very different from the kind of things that you can do against someone who may be elderly or have serious health problems. And this is, in fact, I think where like a lot of the criticism we've seen this year uh, centered towards law enforcement comes from is they might use techniques that if you were to do to a trained grappler would be relatively safe. But if you do them against someone where you don't necessarily know the context of their health history, there could be landmines there that you're walking onto, right? I mean, what if someone has had a serious neck injury in the past and they've had to have like massive neck surgery? If you grab them and start cranking on their neck, you could be creating tremendous health problems for that person that would be very different from if you just practice chokes in class. And I'm presuming that this is a consideration when you're working in healthcare because, you know, the, the kind of pressure and the kind of torque that you would put on me if you're trying to control and submit me, that's very different from a person that probably has very compromised health issues. In some cases, maybe even a person that you don't know, so you don't even actually know what their health issues are. I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about that and if there's any big things that you just absolutely must not do in a healthcare context because even though we as grapplers would consider it safe, in the healthcare situation, it might be considered too dangerous. Yeah, this is the difficulty when we start talking about self-defense is that I think self-defense has done a disservice when you see them talking about a situation and they make it sound like it's going to be easy to deal with if you just do these few things. And this is what you can do every time. There is no blanket technique or way that I can tell that you have to tell you that you have to handle a situation. Every situation that you go up against is probably going to be slightly different and in healthcare as I've kind of talked about some of the situations, this shit can get out of control so fast and can vary from the most minor things to the most severe things. And so that's where I try and have that conceptual approach, showing, talking about alignment frames and levers, et cetera, and showing different ideas and always talking about the idea that what you're doing is always going to have to be adjusted depending on your patient's limitations, their functional movement. They're talking about when we're talking about range of motion. So what I can do to when I'm assessing and I come in and I'm working with, say, a young male who's coming in intoxicated and he's just freaking out on whatever drug he's on, I'm more inclined to know that some of the techniques that I'm going to be using, he's going to probably be a little more flexible. He's going to be stronger. He's going to bruise less. I'm not going to tear the skin up like I would with an elderly patient. So I'm going to be more inclined to control his wrist and say, create a frame with my arm and lean my body weight to pin him into the stretcher where when I'm working with an elderly patient, I can just assess immediately. Even if I don't know the patient's history and I've never worked with a patient before, we'll have to always be assessing the environment of the patient. So when I walk in and I see 98 year old Ina, I can immediately tell that she is elderly, a small female that she's freaking out. Her skin looks like it's starting to wrinkle. It's so I know that it's going to be more delicate and so I have to adjust how hard I'm gripping. I'm having to adjust. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily lean any of my body weight into her. I'm going to be very careful about that. And I talk about how we can kind of make those adjustments. But I'm also able to because I have that size and strength advantage over an elderly patient. And so what works for me and how I describe something, I have to be very careful how I teach that and explain it because that 120-pound female might not be able to do it the same way that I do. And so we always have to be kind of mindful of what is your actual physical capabilities compared to the patient that you're working with. And you have to immediately assess that and you got to look at it. For things that I absolutely hate when it comes to healthcare, 
was pain compliance and within that pain compliance, like looking at the pressure points, wrist locks. So uh, pressure points, obviously I think are just garbage for the most part. They almost never work. They only work on, they have limited ranges of success depending on the person. And when we're looking at wrist locks, this is something I, I saw mostly from hospital security. And so if you're in hospital security or you're about to get into that work, really listen to this. Do not use wrist locks or other forms of joint manipulation to get pain in the hopes that you're going to get the positive response that you want. Pain compliance is that idea that if I create a bunch of pain, that then you don't like the pain and you're going to start following my direction to make that pain go away. When you're doing that to an elderly patient with dementia, they cannot understand what's going on and they just start freaking out. And I saw elderly patients' wrists get get broken and also just it escalating the situation for a long period of time. This is something that we even see with cops happen all the time where you see the cop cranking someone's arm behind their back or their wrists and they're screaming to stop resisting. But then the person is in so much pain that then they're unable to stop resisting because it hurts so much. And then it starts to just aggro from there. And that's just poor understanding, poor techniques. Yeah, I saw that stuff way too often in the hospital. And that it was quite frankly, quite disgusting. Yeah, pain compliance techniques are one of the worst things about martial arts. They are terrible for a variety of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, because they only work against people who don't want to fight you in the first place, right? They they give people an easy way out. And the challenge there is you can get a lot of false positives out of pain compliance techniques because, I mean, if you were to roll with me, Rory, in the gym and you were to, I don't know, like lock me down and like put me in some crazy pressure point and I can't get out, I'm probably going to tap because I it's, it's the gym, right? We're training for fun. But the problem there is that you can wind up getting a ton of false positives because you might think that these techniques actually work. And the second challenge, which you brought up, is that pain compliance does not always lead to compliance, right? You're assuming that if you inflict pain on someone, you'll get them to do what you want. But that's not always going to be the case. They might freak out. You don't understand their state of mind. Pain, in a lot of ways, is a way to escalate a problem, not de-escalate. And so I really am not a fan of pain compliance techniques, not just in the context of healthcare, but in the context of martial arts. I agree. The only pain compliance techniques I demonstrated was purely for releasing bites in which you've screwed up a lot of steps already because you should it's quite easy i think to prevent bites if you're aware uh, and even just making sure you're wearing longer sleeve clothing or something like if we're talking about specifically someone biting onto a forearm or onto your hand but then we're not looking at pain compliance in the sense of me trying to give a direction i'm looking for a specific response and so when someone bites onto my arm if I'm able to apply a pressure point, uh, like some force to the philtrum, the little notch right uh, in between your nostrils, it can be quite uncomfortable or like the uh, mandible right underneath the ear, something that's going to hopefully cause the inclination for a patient to open their mouth and lean their head back. And so we're looking for a very specific pressure points around the head, the upper part of the head, and especially upper jaw to try and get them to open up and release because once someone's bit onto you, I mean, you're so screwed at that point. They're able to cause so much damage. A 98-year-old woman, the strength of the human jaw and the sharpness of teeth, she could still cause some significant damage. And so the prevention is so much more important than the cure. But there are some things that I talk about in that sense where 
there's no pretty solution. You're going to have to, there's multiple things that you might be able to try. You might have limited success, but you screwed up. And that's just the reality of self-defense is that I can't just be like, you just do this. And every time it works, you have to have options. And then you also have to try and call upon that information in the heat of the moment when adrenaline is going crazy, when people in the room are uh, yelling, when you haven't drilled this stuff in a while to call upon that stuff. So difficult. And that's where I try like I save that for the end of the instructional when we're dealing with like level five assault of patients. But it's always with that caveat of just like you have to actually start drilling this stuff now and working on it. And realistically, you should be trying to prevent that before it ever happens. Yeah, that's a challenge that's come up a lot in our recent conversations with guests where the right answer is often it all depends. The context matters so much. And it's very hard to give people a prescriptive answer to say, this is what you should do. You know, and the challenge is we all want that simple answer, right? I I wish there were a technique you could teach me that would always, you know, de-escalate a situation like the one you've described. But the reality is it depends on context. I mean, in all of these conversations with high-level guests that we've had, they'll all say that where it depends, right? You have to take the information that you have, combine that with the training that you have, and make the best decision in the shortest period of time. And that's, I think, one of the areas where self-defense instructionals totally get it wrong. And actually, a lot of self-defense courses get this wrong too. You know, you come in and they'll show you one or two or three techniques and they'll say, okay, you now know how to defend yourself. And the reality is, I think that that just gives people a terrible sense of overconfidence as to how they would perform in that situation. It, It actually, in some cases, might be worse than having no training at all. Because if you send someone to like a, you know, a one day boot camp and, you know, they, they like learn a few eye gouges, they're going to mistakenly think they know how to actually defend themselves. And the real answer, as we see with jujitsu, is just training. Um, ingraining those habits into your muscle memory, ingraining that wisdom into your mind so you don't even have to recall it. That kind of stuff is the stuff that is ultimately going to allow you to make better decisions quickly. And I assume that you have similar issues here where, I mean, like you said, so much of this requires context in training. So how would you suggest that someone in healthcare really goes about actually ingraining the stuff into their practice? Because I'm assuming that it's not as simple as you just teach them a few techniques and now they're good to go. I'm assuming that there probably has to be a commitment to long-term training over time if you want to really be able to apply these concepts effectively. Well, long-term training is always going to be a good idea. And so, like I said, the goal is first to teach the concepts so that people understand what the techniques are looking to accomplish. And Some of it's going to be able to be just implemented day-to-day activities, whether you're working with compliant patients or working with passive resisting patients. It doesn't have to be reserved for just working with the actively and assaultive, the actively resisting and the assaultive patients. So that would be the first start is that they're able to watch the videos and start thinking about it consciously and understanding it and then implementing it at work. And that's where I think this instructional is, well, one, it's the only of its kind. I haven't been able to find any, uh, instruction that's pointed towards healthcare workers besides like s- expensive seminars that you have to pay people from the States to fly over for. So to be able to access that, to be able to learn and uh, learn the concepts, this is what you guys really aim to do is like this, this mindset stuff to be able to understand the concepts. Because if I show a specific wrist grip and just say, Hey, you got to grab their wrist like this. And somebody's watching that for the first time, 
their brain just locks in and focuses on this is the only thing that works or this is what I have to look for. And if you don't have that available, they're unable to problem solve adaptively what's going on in the situation. And so I don't want someone to just say, oh, I got to do this technique because that's what Rory said. I want them to go, well, I need to use the C clamp here so that I'm able to control effectively at the end of the lever up at the wrist. And then I'm going to be able to use uh, two-on-one control by getting the other lever controlling here at the elbow. So that now I've limited the articulation capability of this patient's arm, which is going to help me really reduce the tension on their skin. So I'm not tearing it. And now if I can even get their elbow slightly further away from their body, I'm going to weaken their structure, which weakens their alignment, which now makes it easier for me to control them. And by using this two-on-one control, I'm now using both my arms to isolate a patient's arm by themselves. And that strength difference where I'm able to use more of my body against a smaller part of the patient's body, it's going to allow me to do that efficiently and more effectively. And that's going to be the kind of stuff that, especially when we're looking at female, smaller female nurses working with uh, more aggressive male patients, that stuff is so crucial for them to be able to make up that difference. And then when we start getting into the more extreme stuff, then yeah, that's going to be the stuff where hopefully uh, certain, the smaller stuff, like just doing like, say, disengaging from wrist grabs when someone just grabs like your wrist single or double or shirt grabs do you have co-workers that are in on board with you on this stuff maybe they're watching the same instructional maybe you're just showing them this and you guys are sharing the information that's fine i want this information to be getting out to people and maybe on your break in the break room you're just able to be like hey stephanie grab my wrist okay i'm going to just practice circling out towards the weak part of the grip breaking that grip rep it a few times you can do it so easily it's not going to make you sweat not going to make you sweaty and gross in any kind of way you're able to practice it very lightly and be thinking about this stuff and then if we're looking at the more extreme stuff then yeah quite frankly you're going to have to drill this and you're going to have to increase the resistance but that's why it's at the end of the instructional hopefully i already got people on board and hopefully they see the value in it and people start taking their training into their own hands and making sure that they're uh, confident we can watch instructionals all day And some of us have the ability to watch an instructional and then be able to replicate the move and understand it. You know, maybe they're just natural. Maybe they have a lot of experience. But I would say the the vast majority of people, especially untrained people, if they watch an instructional, you know, unless they actually drill it and kind of take deep dives into the techniques, you know, you don't really have uh a huge understanding of it. There, there needs to be a level of programming in your mind and physical, you know, some people call it muscle memory, where it feels it starts to become natural. And the thing is with combat and jujitsu, it's like nothing is really the same as you can drill things, but nothing is really the same as the idea of live resistance. So what I was going to ask you is, you know, you have this this series that you're developing, Rory, for this very specific group of people, very specific scenario. You know, it's it's basically like it's as niche as jujitsu, but you've narrowed it down even more where we have yeah. to be less physical, less impact, more gentle, more considerate of what we're doing and realizing these people are not going to be trained uh, and ac- accounting for all these special factors. Like what can these people do that is safe, that is, uh, you know, an effective way of training or drilling? It's realistic and uh, Right away, what my estimation is, is hand fighting, whether it is grip breaks, 
controlling the wrist, you know, uh, parrying, understanding the levers. I mean, I think I'm just echoing, honestly, what you've just been saying, but how important is hand fighting for people in these positions? That is a large part of what the instructional is, is that you are starting to move up to a patient, whether we're looking at first a compliant patient where you're already seated beside them, you're working with them. Sometimes, like if we're working with a patient with dementia or uh, whatever the reason is that they're in a psychiatric unit, I've had people talk to me and be like chipper, happy, telling me a story. And then within a fraction of a second, just all of a sudden in a totally different headspace and start trying to attack me. And so we might already be within a very close range where hopefully if we're close to the patient, we're able to have levers already established. We're able to already have dominant position to our patients so that we've limited the weapons that they're able to attack. So if I'm standing off to the side of my patient, the far side of their body should not be able to reach me as easily. So I've taken care of one side. Then by me being at a dominant angle to the side or at a 45 degree angle, I've also aligned my strong muscular movements against their weaker muscular movements. And so I'm going to be aligning my stronger muscles against their weaker muscles. Then even though they're being compliant, maybe depending on how I'm working with them, whether it's changing a diaper or I'll just go back to the example of say drawing blood, you are being very gentle in your touch and your control, but you could still, without them knowing, you could have the end of the levers controlled. So I'm controlling at the wrist or I'm controlling at the elbow. I can still be compassionate. I can still be just having a regular conversation with the patient. Then if all of a sudden they started to freak out and try and pull away in a way that might hurt themselves, or if they're trying to hit me, they're unable to because I already have really dominant alignment. Without them knowing, I have put them in compromise alignment, but not making them uncomfortable. And then I also have mechanical advantages set in place so that then I'm already ahead of the curve. That's the kind of stuff that people are going to be able to just start doing on the job. And there is going to be an unfortunate part of that, just like for <laughs> they're all used to it in healthcare. You'll learn on the job. You can only learn so much, but then when you're on the job, you have to be implementing this. And some of that's also going to be with the violent patients. I would hope that when we're looking at like the hand fighting and all that stuff, that people do actually take the responsibility to take the training into their own hands and start actually getting together. Or uh, like I've had the opportunity to do some seminars with some organizations, which has been awesome to get to work with them one-on-one or in groups. But are they working on when the patient's freaking out that they're already doing the job? They're just not doing it in the most efficient or effective ways. They might be getting hurt while they're doing it. And so the training opportunity to do it at work is unfortunately already there. And so they can start trying to approach this with a different mindset and being able to get that control. And then in those more extreme circumstances, then yeah, when we're looking at self-defense blocking strikes, when we're looking at, breaking wrist grabs or uh, shirt grabs or God forbid, like bites and hair pulls where it gets really difficult, that stuff, you're going to have a really difficult time calling upon that. And so the higher level of force that we're getting into in the instructions, the more I emphasize how important it is that you have to train this with partners and be able to start increasing that resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that that is really the only way to truly become comfortable with the material. At least that's my and I think the majority of people's experience with jujitsu is you have to go in there and you have to get some some reps, maybe with a partner or whatever, you know, and and just do the hand fighting. The great thing about hand fighting, you know, even just from a jujitsu point of view, is it dominating that engagement phase leads you down to so many successful outcomes if you can just win that engagement phase. But if you if you lose that engagement phase, the whole fight can go the other direction. So I think it's really important 
in any of these situations to always control the hands, whether you're grappling, whether you are a police officer and someone has a weapon in this situation where maybe uh, you could get scratched or bitten or you're get, getting your hair pulled. You know, it, it's so important to, I think, just just focus on, how, OK, how can we just control levers? How can we dominate these these hand exchanges? And I, I wanted to ask you, Roy, because we're, we've been discussing talks about like alignment and, uh, you know, all these specialized situations where you might get your hair pulled, you might get bitten and and thing it might get struck or whatever and you have to carry out these very specific tasks you know whether it's changing a diaper or taking blood whatever i'm just wondering does your instructional series does it include talking about de-escalation maybe creating conversation as a distractor things like that that go beyond controlling someone but more how we can use language and body language and conversation to de-escalate situations with these people. In this instructional, I haven't spent very much time on that, and I state that right out the gate because there is quite a bit of information out there already on that stuff for healthcare professionals, but I do go over basics of body language because that's definitely more tied into alignment and making sure that body language cues that people are demonstrating aren't going to be incongruent to what they're trying to communicate verbally. and very little to do when it comes to like the communication, obviously not raising their voice and certain terms to stay away from. But that wasn't the goal of this instructional, because like I said, there is information already out there because you had brought up law enforcement previously as well. If you Google law enforcement techniques, there is a lot of information on for police officers on how to control the suspects, how to do handcuffing just on YouTube alone. There's a ton of information on use of force stuff. But if you look at healthcare. There's nothing. There are some theory, some little things that are talked about, but you don't really see any techniques or anything that I think is actually very good. And so my primary goal was this, was the first, what is the area that they receive no training in? Healthcare staff get like, depending on what they call it, non-violent crisis intervention, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many different ways that it's been worded over time. Similar stuff where they do talk about some body language. They talk about how to actually speak to the patient and not be uh, certain things to avoid to risk escalating the situation. But the stuff, the the gaping hole in the knowledge out there for healthcare staff is the physical hands-on part. And that's the part that is happening all the time. This is the verbal part. The verbal part is absolutely important, but they need the training for that. And depending on the patients they're working with, they're, they're not going to have that opportunity necessarily to be able to verbally de-escalate. There's going to be Things that they still want to be doing the whole time to try and, as I talked about, the aggregate of marginal gains where you just try and have like this one to two percent increase in the positive direction in all these different areas can totally affect the totality of the situation. But I'm not trying to get too in depth on that. If people want more stuff, then I might possibly add stuff to this instructional because as more people are providing feedback and asking for stuff or needing more clarification, I've already started filming additions to add on to this course, or maybe even doing a complete separate course. Nice. Yeah. I guess you always leave yourself open for, you know, more material or whatever. Um, just wondering how can people get this instructional? I actually know a few people who uh, could greatly benefit from this because of their occupations. Where can people find this? So I have it hosted on teachable, which is a pretty amazing course hosting website. So I have links through, I mean, you should be able to find it on Google but also being able to find it through my RVV BGJ YouTube channel, through Facebook, through Instagram, 
Googling healthcare control strategies and self-defense. That's what I have the course named at. And you're going to be able to find a bunch of information for that. I'm also, there's free previews on the course itself. And I am going to be taking those free previews and uploading them onto YouTube. They'll probably already be on YouTube by the time you guys actually hear this podcast, depending on how long, uh, when you guys are releasing it. And so even if you're not quite sure and you just want to check this stuff out, I'm going to have videos that you can just look up RVV BGJ or even just as basic as healthcare self-defense. And you're going to be able to find that material and be able to at least get very useful information just from those videos. Cause the three that I'm going to be releasing, I think would highly benefit uh, nurses. And it was stuff that I worked with, with coworkers when whether working with nurses just personally, or even the, protection services officers that I worked with when they're like, Hey, I'm having troubles dealing with patients in this situation. How do I control a patient's legs when they're trying to kick me in a stretcher? Or how do I effectively control uh, a patient's arms in a stretcher while they're trying to hit me? Because sometimes you have to do that for like half an hour and it can be quite tiring. Even for me as a, uh, I was a young athletic male. If I have to control an 80 year old man's arms or at least one arm, for half an hour while healthcare staff are doing a whole bunch of uh, amazing duties being completed, I start to sweat and get tired. And because I'm just I'm just standing there trying to hold this guy and try and keep him safe, and he's fighting for his life, it's amazing the strength and the endurance that these people can summon when they're unfortunately so scared for their life. I guess I have one other question that I want to ask you, Rory, and that is, I know that a lot of people who work in healthcare already train jujitsu. Most of the females that I train with, they either work in healthcare or law enforcement. And so I think there's a degree of cross-pollination there. I'm wondering for people who are already training jujitsu and might be interested in your material or in the concepts that you've talked about here, what would you suggest people do to alter their existing training if they want to become more effective in their job as a caregiver? That's the difficult part. And that's where the conceptual understanding really comes down, where it becomes so important. Because you could be a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and have an amazing ability to attack from various different guards and have certain submissions and sweeps and attacks once you get to full mount. But do you really understand conceptually what's going on with alignment, frames, levers, wedges, et cetera, that you're able to start translating this stuff? Because this is where, like, I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, but at the same time, while I'm teaching that healthcare course, I don't want someone to think that they're getting Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu lessons because, as Matt was kind of referencing, there's the hand fighting aspect, which is something that would translate into grappling in general, but I'm not framing it that way. And so how I started coming about this stuff was as I'm training Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and as I'm learning these alignment concepts and frames and levers and wedges and center of gravity and momentum, et cetera, from Rob Bernacki, then I was starting to take that and implement it at work and start thinking about ways where it's like, okay, well, if I can control with two on one control from butterfly guard, I should be able to use two on one control against a standing opponent, which we do in wrestling. So why can't I use this two-on-one control beside a patient in their bed? Because obviously that's going to gain me the maximum uh, leverage. And then how can I use some of these other concepts like dominant angle to my opponent in grappling? Now I'm going to try and use that dominant angle to set myself up in 
uh, when working with a patient to be able to limit what they're able to do. So there has to be that conceptual underpinning to the techniques where you actually understand why a technique works and what it's looking to accomplish. And then that's where you start to translate that stuff into law enforcement, into healthcare, into whatever. And that's where you've already kind of stated this as well, Steve, where the problem with self-defense is that they just show a couple techniques and there's not really any other explanation to it. So all you get when you learn how to deal with an oncoming punch or like a, say a wrist grab. So if someone grabs you and you get shown one way of how to break the wrist, the grip that they have on you, that's all you have from that. But if you learn the concepts of how they're trying to control the end of the lever and you learn about how there's the weak part of the grip out towards the fingers and the thumb, the space between those, and you learn how to turn alignment into your favor to keep your elbows in close to your body so that you're going to be able to incorporate your entire body as one in a strong kinetic chain while you try and bring their elbow further away from their body so it becomes your body versus their arm so that even a smaller woman would be able to break the grip of a larger male attacker. Then once we start to understand that stuff, now you can start to translate it and modify it into techniques for people of different sizes, but also in various different circumstances, whether it's full on self-defense or the various different kinds of employment. Uh, just out of curiosity, Roy, do you show any takedowns or any uh, submissions? No, none. Because once again, this was extremely fundamental beginner. Like I still have over four hours of content to be able to teach healthcare practitioners how to work effectively with patients and protect themselves in various different circumstances. But the goal of this was not to go as far as taking patients down and getting into that stuff. I will be doing an instructional for law enforcement, which I'm going to be focusing on a lot more of that stuff. And there's going to definitely be any of the stuff I show in that would work for healthcare staff. And that'll be something that I'll be trying to figure out how I'm going to market and bundle it all together. But this was not to show people how to do takedowns. That stuff is potentially important, but it becomes more rare. And hopefully you have hospital security. If there's situations where you already know you're going to have to go in and take a patient down, then hopefully there's an assessment done where you've assessed how much backup you have, what your other options are, because it becomes so much more dangerous. And so if, like I said, when I was trying to create this instruction on the idea of, can someone like my mom watch this? And if she had to do healthcare duties, would she be able to learn from this and be comfortable learning this stuff? I'm not going to be showing people right out the bat how to do a takedown because it's that much more dangerous and that much more complicated. And that's where that drilling becomes more important, where the more complicated the technique gets, the more different movements involved with it, then it's that much harder to call upon that information. So this is very simple stuff, very simple techniques and concepts to give them a better understanding of how to do their job safely. And I will have more stuff in the future about takedowns. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, awesome, Rory. I think that this is a really awesome endeavor that you're on. It's something that I know will be applicable to a lot of grapplers. I know a lot of people who train jujitsu and work in healthcare. Let's tie this up. Do you have any closing thoughts or ideas you want to share before we go home? Oh, man, I've talked so much already. I think I've gotten most of the parts out there. It's just if you're a healthcare practitioner, then obviously I recommend you check out my content. But even if you uh, weren't interested in that, I recommend that you start looking a little bit more at what you can do for martial arts and what I think Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu would be the best to start learning uh, how to defend yourself. 
But even with that, that's the, the issue that some people have is that as they try and get into martial arts, the martial arts aren't going to be directed in a way that's applicable to healthcare or law enforcement stuff right away. So when you go into a class and you start learning Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and you start with a scissor sweep from closed guard, obviously we don't want to end up in closed guard, but you will learn from that and you will start to understand concepts behind that and you will eventually be able to start translating those skills into the work that you're doing. And also, if you learn how to protect yourself at those further ranges, then I think that does ultimately still make you more confident to be able to work at the other ranges in healthcare where you're, say, standing up, talking with a patient, because you know that if you ended up in a bad situation where you did, unfortunately, get thrown onto your back, you know how to protect yourself from there. And so if you can protect yourself in the worst case scenarios, then that kind of gives you that that range to fall back on and be able to more confidently de-escalate and use your verbal communication, but then more confidently work with them hands-on, knowing that you're not going to put yourself, you're not going to get yourself killed or brutally maimed on the job because you have that ability to train on the ground effectively. Fantastic. So let's remind the people, if they want to find you, where can they do that? RVV BGJ. I got a YouTube channel, Facebook, Instagram. I do have a website that is live right now. I'm just trying to optimize the search engines that you can easily find it by typing it into Google. But yeah, if you're interested in specifically the course itself, it's healthcare control strategies and self-defense. Awesome. Awesome. And of course, I think people know where to find us. In addition to the podcast, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's the homepage for the website. It's got link outs to all the podcast episodes and the full database of mental models that we talk about here on the show. Of course, you can also, if you want to support us, and we do appreciate it greatly, go to patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. That's really where the heroes are. Those are the people who keep the show afloat. It is their patronage and their support that allows us to do what we do at this kind of scale. And we definitely will make it worth your while. If you do support us, you'll get all sorts of benefits like exclusive educational material, plus access to our community discord and the opportunity to send your rolling footage to Matt and I for review. So again, if you want to get on board, that's patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. You can also go to our store, BJJ mental mentalmodels.com slash store pick up t-shirts gi patches and hoodies you can get on our mailing list sent out every friday at bjjmentalmodels.com slash join and you can join us on facebook and on instagram so again rory really unique topic i think this is something that doesn't get talked about enough I think it's greatly applicable and actually not just for people who work in the profession i think it's also a useful philosophy for the rest of us to have because it is likely at some point that if we're going to get into a situation where we have to use jujitsu, it could very well be a situation where we're doing it from a caregiver perspective and not from a self-defense perspective. So again, thank you so much for dropping by and sharing your knowledge. Greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for having me guys. And uh, yeah, Rory, good job, man. Awesome material. Again, if you guys haven't checked out Rory's channel, it's great conceptual stuff. It's basically like a, it's like a branch of the Robert Bernanke system as Rory's a black belt under him and just really fantastic breakdowns. And uh, I'm looking forward to checking out this instructional and sharing it for sure. So thanks a lot, Rory. Awesome stuff. Thank you, guys.